I'm Laura London, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. I started this new series in the spring of 2020 during the coronavirus lockdown, when I decided to spend my extra time at home interviewing some of my friends about the interesting work that they do. Joining us today for the ninth edition in this series is geologist and earthquake specialist Wade Johnson in Boulder, Colorado. After studying nuclear engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, he changed course and graduated with a degree in geology, focusing on its economic aspects. He then went to work as a seismologist at the Berkeley Seismological Lab in their borehole seismology group. For the past 16 years, he has worked on the Plate Boundary Observatory, installing borehole strain meters and seismometers. He has worked on projects in the field of remote sensing in North America, Turkey, Central America, the Caribbean, and India. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you'll find links to everything that is discussed in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, August 12th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Wade. Hi, Laura. I really appreciate your time today. I've been wanting to do this with you for years, actually, because you are my go-to earthquake specialist, as I mentioned. And um, I don't know if you remember receiving texts from me uh, every time I pretty much every time I'm in California. What was that? Was that an earthquake? (laughs) And so you would usually send me a link where I could check myself. But no, I'd rather I'd rather hear it from you. So Now, uh, I have a lot of resources at my fingertips where it's just something that it's kind of like for me monitoring the weather. I want to know where the earthquakes are. And so there's some great Twitter accounts um, that I visit daily. But it's interesting that earthquakes have been in the news so much over the past few weeks. And I've been experiencing that kind of synchronicity with these episodes. I schedule these my guests kind of sometimes months ahead of time and everything's just been kind of linking together and, and being very timely. And so I'm going to stop talking and let you fill us in a little bit about what's been going on in the world of earthquake monitoring. Well, yeah, it has been a, especially the last week with that earthquake in North Carolina that always, I think, um, Surprises people when you get an earthquake in an area on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have a dense network on that area because we don't have a lot of earthquakes there. So that was really unusual. It's it's unusual, but not surprising. Okay. Um, So that that area, you know, I think that's called the Tennessee Seismic Zone, and it's known to produce a magnitude five earthquake every hundred years or so. Um, and if you go to, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, I think it was 1886 where they had something that we think was in the range of 6.8 to 7.1, um, size earthquake that did quite a bit of damage in Charleston. And so there is definitely 
activity along the eastern east coast but it's not um driven by this necessarily by the same forces as such as the san andreas fault and mm-hmm. the plate boundary um so we call the those earthquakes a interplate earthquake probably the most famous interplate earthquake would have been the series of earthquakes that took place um in missouri and southern illinois area um on the new Madrid fault zone in the very early 1800s. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, a lot of these earthquakes are basically occurring due to uh, stress that was built up, you know, tens to hundreds of millions of years ago, and it's still relaxing. So this earthquake that occurred in North Carolina, one of the thoughts behind it is that this is, this is, is, uh, the stress being released from when the Atlantic basin formed hundreds of millions of years ago. And so, you know, Africa, Europe, North America were all together as one continent. And then there was an upwelling, we believe, that caused a rift zone that eventually rifted and became the Atlantic Ocean. And so there's a lot of residual stress from that whole process that can create these earthquakes that randomly, this seem to be randomly occurring um, versus North America or versus the West Coast, where we have a very active plate boundary zone. And you mentioned the San Andreas Fault. And for listeners who are not familiar, that is on the West Coast, right? Right. That's kind of what we consider the primary um, plate boundary between the Pacific plate and the North American plate, even though it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. um, That's kind of where we put the plate boundary at. And so the Pacific plate is basically moving Northwest compared to the North American plate. And so that's what gives that strike slip motion. And then as you get into Northern California, that changes from a strike slip into a subduction zone between the Juan de Fuca plate and the North American plate with a spreading ridge off into the Pacific Ocean between the Juan de Fuca plate and the Pacific plate. (laughs) And you get some very complicated tectonics in these areas where you get these transitions of different forces and different directions of movement. The Juan de Fuca plate is up in the Pacific Northwest, right? Is that correct? Near well, the the Strait of Juan de Fuca, I know, is there. Right. It, so that's what it's basically named after. Is that what caused the earthquake in Seattle a few years ago? Yeah. So I think, and I'm as well. The caveat is a lot of this is coming from memory, and so I okay. could be wrong. Sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was a probably an earthquake that was taking place on the subducting plate. So it was relatively deep. And as, as the crust subducts underneath the North America continent, as it's going down, it's actually breaking apart. And so you can get these deep earthquakes from it. Um, but we are expecting a very large, you know, somewhere in the order of magnitude, high eights, uh, to nine nine point one earthquake along the subduction zone, you know what we call the Cascadia subduction zone, which is the Juan de Fuca plate 
subducting underneath the North American plate. You say you're expecting it. So any year now, is that what you mean? Um, I, you know, there, there's a probability of, you know, I think it's a few percent over the next 50 years that this will happen, but it's, it will happen at some point. Right. But <laughs> we, I mean, we maybe, just, maybe not in our lifetime. Um, probably not in our lifetime, but there's definitely a non-zero chance it'll happen in our lifetime and we need to be very well prepared for it. And so what, uh, now where exactly, you're talking about the United States, where exactly is that? So it goes from, uh, Northern California. So far Northern California. So Mendocino area. So North of the Bay area. That's North of the Bay area. Pretty far yeah. North. Okay. Um, and the, the zone stretches all the way up towards, uh, Vancouver Island. And then, it, and then it, and then it changes over back into another large transform fault, similar to the San Andreas fault. So up into and past North of Vancouver Island. Yes. And you said that we need to be prepared. Are there preparations in place? Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of funny. Um, it used to be Europeans didn't believe that that area was tectonically active. Europeans? Even the, what did they have in, to do with it? Well, as in like the first settlers, European settlers into the area. Okay. And so the, the, the Native Americans, the First Nation tribes mm -hmm. in the uh, Oregon, Washington, and Vancouver area had spoken history about a great shaking, about the ground dropping, about this massive earthquake, which was probably the 1700 um, Cascadia earthquake. And so, you know, settlers moved in, thought that, oh, that's crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. And we kind of built up in that area without doing a lot of, you know, earthquake engineering. Right. And back in the 70s, um, they started doing trenching around the coast of Washington and Oregon, and they started finding these buried forests. So these forests where, you know, the land sunk, salt water came in and killed off these forests. Okay. And they started dating them and realizing like, oh, this, this goes to the um, last earthquake um, in, um, I'm trying to remember the, date of it i'm sorry okay. um uh actually uh 1700 okay um and there's evidence of an earthquake there in 1700 correct correct and the really crazy part about it is there's also evidence of a massive tsunami oh. in japan that oh. they call the orphan tsunami because there is normally they're shaking preceding a tsunami in japan they just got hit by a tsunami and had no idea where it came from. And they had really excellent oh, written records. Mm -hmm. And so they started putting like, okay, we have carbon dating and dating something happened in 1700 in Washington, Oregon area. And we have records of a tsunami hitting Japan in mm -hmm. 1700 and put two, two together and realized, oh, there was a mega thrust earthquake on the Cascadia subduction zone that probably produced an earthquake in the, you know, magnitude nine range. So something similar to the Tohoku earthquake in 2011. 
Where was that? Uh, in Japan. It was the the large Japan earthquake in 2011. Okay. And, well, I was very interested in that in the Pacific Northwest because, as you know, I used to live in Seattle. And right. my fear was Mount Rainier because of I wasn't living in the area when Ma Mount St. Helens erupted. But Mount Rainier is an active volcano, right? And Correct. And that was always my reasoning for why I didn't want to live in that area permanently. And then after I left, uh, there was that earthquake in downtown Seattle that did quite right. a bit of damage. Now, are they, so you're saying that that, that they are at risk for having a, an even larger earthquake. And as far as oh, I yeah. know, there, we had no earthquake preparedness when I lived there. So in the last uh, 20 years, especially, they've really uh, worked on earthquake preparedness. Part of the reason, so you know the Alaska Viaduct that goes oh, yeah. on uh, mm -hmm. West Seattle? So that's been that's getting torn down. They're building a tunnel. Part of the reason is, um, you know, all the simulations they had was the Alaska Viaduct completely collapsing mm. and then getting inundated with a tsunami. Mm. And the idea of a tunnel might sound counterintuitive, but tunnels are actually pretty strong if they're designed correctly. Okay. And not a bad place to be if there's an earthquake. Mm. Um, and the shaking in Seattle, you know, it's going to be very strong, but most of the shaking is going to be out in the ocean um, at the um, subduction zone. That's probably where the, the major epicenter or hypocenter is going to be. So it's not the case that an earthquake can occur anywhere it has to occur at that in that zone and so you're saying that the city is not right above it so well it's it's right above it but where this where the um the lock zone is is actually farther towards the west from seattle and so that that's where the shaking is going that's where the okay. energy is going to get released but you can kind of think i don't know if you ever saw the videos of tokyo during the 2011 earthquake. No, I haven't. There's some amazing videos of um, water coming out of, you know, of everything just swaying back and forth and shaking, like being on a boat, water squirting out of the ground from hydrostatic pressure from the earthquake. And, um, and that was, you know, Tokyo was hundreds of miles away. From that earthquake. And you're talking about uh, what they experienced right there in Tokyo. Right there in Tokyo. And so Seattle, Seattle's going to have strong shaking, but it's probably going to be not as strong as you might expect for such a large earthquake, but it's going to be a long period of shaking. And so there will be damage. There will be, and the worst part about it is going to be the tsunami associated with mm -hmm. it. And so especially along the coast, the Oregon coast, like Seaside, Gold Beach, areas like that um, have been doing a lot of preparation for the earthquake over the last 20 years. Yeah, you mentioned 20 years. Just for the record, I did leave Seattle over 20 years ago. So, Right. Um, so like in the 70s, they started realizing, oh, there might be earthquakes here. And then they really started studying that zone, putting out instrumentation. And now it's like, okay, this is a real threat. And, you know, we think this probably happens in all subduction zones, but the Cascadia has a interesting process called uh, ETS, 
which is the episodic tremor and slip, which basically every, you know, approximately every 14 months, we see an increase of noise. And the way we initially saw this was the, like all the seismometers across the Cascadia zone, especially like Vancouver and Washington, was starting this noise signal on them. And it wasn't like a unique earthquake. It just was a noise across all of them. And then when we started putting out continuous GPS sites, we started seeing offsets. So basically, you know, the ground would subside in some areas, would go up in some areas that was coincidental with this. And so it's basically the equivalent of a 6 to 6.5 earthquake. But instead of taking place over 20 seconds, it takes place over two weeks. Oh, okay. And then once you start getting better seismometers and quieter ones, you start seeing these like individual pulses of earthquakes. And it's that whole fault zone just does this very slow slip. And so while it's in that phase, the actual chances of a bigger earthquake goes up um, by, you know, several hundred percent. It's still 700% of a very, very small daily percentage risk. Mm -hmm. So it's still a very small daily risk um but that that shows us that it's a very dynamic and active uh convergence zone mm -hmm. so now there are those active volcanoes in the cascade mountains mm -hmm. are, is there any relationship between earthquakes and volcanoes erupting? so that's that, that's a good question um you know i, I have a feeling if the if the cascadia subduction zone erupt um or was to have a major earthquake mm -hmm you probably would see some uh, increase in volcanic activity, not necessarily because, you know, well, some of it's like, you know, you shake up a bottle of Coke. Yeah. That pressure is going to actually go up as the CO2 gets released. It could be something like that, but also, you know, Mount St. Helens, the initial eruption of St. Helens was caused by an earthquake. So there was a local is earthquake. Right? Okay. Causing the, yeah, so right before the major landslide, there was an earthquake that triggered a landslide of an unstable hill slope from the increase of the mag from the basically magma building up underneath the volcano. That slid off of the side of the volcano, which is the largest landslide we've ever recorded in our in human history. And this was in 1980. For those people We're, that don't know, the Mount St. Helens eruption in Washington right. State. And there's amazing video of the landslide too. You can find it on YouTube. And as that went off, it decreased the pressure on the upper magma chamber, which caused the rock to explode out. So it was exactly like pulling off the top of a shaken up can of Coke or popping mm -hmm. the top and having it explode out. So as soon as that restraining pressure gets released, boom. And, you know, you're talking about Mount Rainier. Uh, there's a lot of geologic evidence of of lahars coming off of Mount Rainier, which is basically a mixture of rock and mud and water that has these massive landslides that come down at you know over 100 miles an hour. Wait, so that's and been happening, or there's evidence that it has happened? It's it's been happening over like it happens all the time in, in geologic timescale. It happens all the time. We just haven't had a lahar since um, you know modern people have lived in that area. Okay. 
Uh, but it's a definite risk. There's actually like in Eatonville, Washington, there's a, a alarm system to evacuate schools and get people uphill before the lahar, lahar comes running through that area. From Rainier? And from Rainier. Okay. So like Tacoma, you know, Eatonville, Tacoma, South Seattle, you know, yeah, there is a risk of a major lahar coming through. And so even a small eruption on Rainier mm-hmm. could cause a similar flanked collapse to what happened at St. Helens, causing a massive mudslide. So those, that's like what, that's what is going to get people. It's not necessarily the eruption. It's okay. all the material coming off of the volcano at extremely high rates that yeah. will travel very far. And for, for those listeners who don't know what we're talking about, Mount Rainier is the beautiful, gorgeous, 14,000 foot high mountain that you can see from the city of Seattle on a clear day. And when I was a student at the University of Washington in Seattle, the have you been there, Wade, to that campus? Yeah. It's called Red Square. That's what we called it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the main center of campus where the Suslo Library and the undergraduate library and some other buildings that I can't remember the name of. And then they make a square and it's all red brick that gets very slippery when it rains. And it's, it's um, designed so that the opening frames Mount Rainier and on the days that it's visible it's just breathtaking I I love it and it's it stands alone so it looks a lot more majestic because it's not surrounded by other 14,000 foot peaks it's sort of by itself and it has a glacier it the the peak is always has snow on it and so yeah I it's one of my fears is that that thing would erupt and I kind of can see it in my mind's eye and I feel like it's going to happen in my lifetime. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it, so the thing about, you know, Rainier is that there's, you know, it has that huge amount of ice on the top of it and then it has volcanic fluids per- percolating through the edifice of the volcano. And those fluids tend to turn hard rock into clay and so there's a lot of material that could potentially come off I of see. that volcano. And I, you've, I think you've flown over it and you can see those scars in the side of the volcano when you're flying, you know, you're going into SeaTac. And if you get a good view of it, you can see these like just deep gouges at the side of the volcano. And those are areas where Lahars came down the volcano. Okay. And so to me, that that is a much greater threat of a, a small eruption with a massive Lahar than necessarily a large eruption. Um, because like, if there's going to be a big eruption, like St. Helens, we knew St. Helens was going to erupt. For, and how, we for ha- how long before it erupted did, did you guys know it was going to erupt? Well, the, the, for months beforehand, they knew that something was happening. They could see that the volcano was basically blowing up like a balloon as magma was transferred from the lower magma chambers into the upper magma chamber. For months they they knew were people evacuated or. Yeah. People were evacuated. Um, I think there's the famous guy named Harry Truman, not the president, Mm -hmm. but a gentleman who owned a uh, lodge on spirit Lake refused to evacuate. And he became this very famous folk hero because he wasn't going to listen to the scientist he loved the vol- the mountain and the mountain loved him. And he would, you know, 
if it was going to erupt, that was his time, but he didn't think the volcano would hurt him. And then when it erupted, he basically disappeared because he died. Oh. And and the volcano, basically the landslide went into Spirit Lake. Um, but many people were, were evacuated. The big problem was nobody knew that a volcano could erupt the way St. Helens erupted. Um, in, in, in the, in the way, because the, I've seen pictures of it, the big, and you can see it, the, the whole one side is just gone. The whole one side. So what happened was there was an earthquake, the side slid down and then the, the blast erupted from the side and shot out laterally to the North, uh, West. And that's that whole zone. Like if you go to St. Helens, it's, it's a beautiful park to visit. And I highly recommend people go to the St. Helens Monument. And there's the Johnston Ridge Observatory. And it's named after a USGS scientist who was monitoring the volcano and was and announced that it was erupting and then was killed almost immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, because they had evacuated a zone around the volcano expecting it to erupt straight up. I see. Yeah. And so a lot of people were camping in the national forest and the BLM land to the uh, northwest of the volcano who all had to be evacuated. And many people died because the way it erupted, it just sent that shockwave right out and was outside of what they call the exclusion zone. Um, and there was USGS scientists who were on the south side on the edifice of the volcano on the south side who survived because all that energy was directed away from them. And that was totally uh, unexpected. There was no way to predict that. Well, I mean, in 2020 hindsight, okay. now we understand that that's a possible mo- method of failure. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, knowing what we know now, uh, probably that northwest side of the volcano would have had a larger exclusion zone because that's where this huge bulge was building up on the side of the volcano. And I mean, that's kind of how science is. You have your yes. theory, you have your methodology, and then something comes along and you're like, oh, <laughs> we missed some critical right. details. We never had data to indicate this could happen. Now that we have that data, we can work that into our future models. And so things get better as we learn more. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of lives can be lost. But a lot more people would have died if we weren't monitoring it, if we didn't know that it was going to erupt. Um, it could have been really bad. There is also that chance that people, like the gentleman that you mentioned, are, will hear the warning and will decide not to evacuate. And that's happening exactly. all the time with these hurricanes um, that people decide to stay home and kind of ride it out. Right. So, mm-hmm. and with the. Um, where did I, what did I want to say with, you said something about a, a shock wave that that's initially people that were that close to it. That's what destroyed them. Right. It, yeah. I mean, it, 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 things are happening so fast that basically, you know, that side slides by and you have all this molten rock with lots of, you know, sticky, you know, it's not like, um, like a Hawaiian volcano, the lava that comes out doesn't have a lot of gases in it and it's very fluid. Mm -hmm. And so it's very predictable how it's going to flow. 
and it generally doesn't explode. So those St. are different. Helen, You're saying those are different volcanoes they're, in Hawaii. They're different. It's completely different material that's melted. And so you have so the Hawaiian volcanoes are what's called basaltic material. So it doesn't have a lot. It doesn't have as high as amount of silica in it. Um, so it's very fluid and likes to flow. And so any gas that gets tra- trapped in it can bubble out of it really easily. Now the volcanoes that you get in these like subduction zone volcanoes, similar to what you see at St. Helens and Rainier, a lot of that melt is melted, um, more granitic type rock. And because it has more silica in it, it's a lot thicker and it has a lot of gas trapped in it. And that gas can't escape easily. And so, so as, as soon as you relieve the pressure off of it, it just flat, it goes from basically, you know, this thick sticky material into rock powder and expands, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times over and then blasts out. And so it sends a shock wave and then that knocks all those trees down. Okay. And so I was saying before, if you go to the uh, Mount St. Helens National Monument, you will see all these trees that are just blasted down in one direction. And I recommend going sooner than later because the the ecosystem is rebuilding. Yeah, I was going to say and still. Yeah, no, it, it's actually uh, when I first visited St. Helens was in 2004 mm-hmm. when I was scouting out some places to put in instrumentation. And between, and that was like right when the eco, even though it was almost 25 years later, that's when the ecosystem really started kind of t- kicking off. And, you know, these plants started kind of growing exponentially. Okay. And so between it took that long, it took 25 years. Yeah. It, it took, wow. you know, for, tw- you know, it looked like a lunar landscape for most of that time. And it's kind of this exponential growth of the plant life. And so from the first time I scouted out one of the sites in 2004 to when we installed 2007, it was night and day with mm-hmm. the amount of plants, which is, it's, it's really fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had actually an eruption starting in about 2004 that kind of died off by 2008 of a, a rebuilding phase of the volcano. So it was still that thick lava that was coming out, but it didn't have a lot of gases in it. So it didn't explode. It actually just kind of like these long chunks of rock would like start pushing themselves out of the ground. And so eventually, so St. Helens will rebuild itself back up to being a standard looking volcano. Then it'll blow its top off again, and then it'll rebuild again, as long as there's a supply of material coming into it. So they're very dynamic, um, ephemeral um, pieces of geology, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So now this is something that you work on too, these volcanic areas, not just the earthquake zones? Um, yeah. So we, we have our instrumentation that's built out on uh, volcanoes. We have sites in Yellowstone for monitoring the volcano. Uh, I've worked on, you know, then, uh, you know, also working in tectonic environments. So the instruments are um, that we have seismometers, GPS, strain meters, uh, tilt meters, which are instruments that measure, you know, how much the ground is tilting. We have all these instruments that 
they work across all different types of environments. So from earthquakes to hydrology to volcanoes. So I want you to tell us about the stuff that you install, because I see pictures of you all the time and you're installing something and I don't know what it is. (laughs) But I also want to mention how you and I know each other. We met in 2009 at Joshua Tree Retreat Center. That was the first time we ever met. And we just kind of, we didn't know each other. I just started talking to you, I think. And we've kept in touch ever since. And it's interesting. And I didn't realize how many people I met for the first time at that Joshua Tree Retreat Center. I've only (laughs) been there uh, twice, I think. I've only been there twice. I've only been there twice. And I've already had several people on this podcast that I initially met there. It's it's a great, interesting, wonderful, kind of magical spot. So we know each other and we've seen right. each other since and we've kept in touch. But I always see pictures of you with this equipment that does not look familiar. And you travel a lot too. You go to Turkey a lot. And you were recently in India. So what are you doing out in the field? Um, So the primary piece of equipment I I work on is called a strain meter. Um, So yeah, I look, so you can think of like a, a seismometer measures how the ground is shaking. So we can measure the velocity of the shaking and the acceleration. And that's the the needle on the paper, right? That's kind of the needle on the paper. Uh, Now that's all going into computers, gets digitized and sent to the computers and can watch it on your computer. Um, Can we watch live seismometers on the computer? You can actually, if you go to, uh, there's a, there's an organization called IRIS and their website is iris.edu and you can click on their outreach links and there's just a lot of resources for looking at, uh, real time seismometers. There's another organization called UNAVCO, unavco.org, which does more GPS and deformation studies. And you can go and look at their data, you know, their daily plots if you feel an earthquake, you can go and look at some of their, you know, Iris or UNAVCO's plots and you can see, oh yeah, you can see that earthquake on the GPS signal or on the strain signal or on the seismometer. Okay. And, and I so will provide little... links to everything Wade just mentioned in the show notes on this episode page at speakingofyoung.com. And so the instrument I installed was called a strain meter. Mm-hmm. So instead of measuring the shaking of the rock, we're actually measuring how the rock is deforming. And so our instrument's able to pick up things that might not be seen on a GPS receiver. So I'll go into the, quickly go into what a GPS receiver does is, you know, we put these monuments in, um, which are secured to the ground, usually anywhere between 10 and 30 feet into the ground, cemented into place. You know, if it's rock, bedrock at the surface, then you you can put a steel, you know, a bunch of steel rods and you tie them together kind of like a pyramid um, with each rod being a apex of the pyramid. You cement, you weld them together at the top and then you put a GPS antenna on top of that. And so that basically ties that GPS antenna into the ground. And if it's loose soil, we might drill deeper and cement that in. So you actually do the drilling into the bedrock 
Yeah, if it's if it's like in the bedrock, if it's like uh, you know rock exposed at the surface, then we drill it ourselves. We go in with you know jackhammer type things, and it can be a lot of work, especially if it's hot out. How do you get uh, the equipment to these remote areas? Do you drive um, it? We can drive it in uh, a lot of time. Helicopter, like in Alaska, they use helicopters to get the equipment in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ATV mules. Uh, really? donkeys yeah so like at, at yellowstone they'll bring equipment in in wilderness areas where no v- motor vehicles are allowed they'll bring the equipment in through m- mule trains and horses um you've so mentioned can... yeah you've mentioned yellowstone a couple times and i i don't want to forget to ask you about it okay. because i don't know anything i've never been to yellowstone and i know you have many times many times <laughs> um but anyway okay yeah we'll talk about that um but let me just for yeah, the yeah, gps I'm sorry. go ahead um so you put a gps antenna with an advanced receiver and with that you can measure how the ground is moving down to like a millimeter per year of movement oh. uh horizontal and a little less resolution vertical just because of the way the satellites works and the geometry and so a, a gps is really good at measuring you know, what's going on from tenths of seconds to years. And then you get a seismometer that's really good at measuring what's going into like microseconds to minutes, maybe to hours. And then the instrument I install is a strain meter that can measure in the seconds range out into like the month range. We're really good at picking it up data in that area. So strain, so strain meter means like the strain on the rock, on the, on the earth. Right, which is basically the deformation of the rock is okay. strain. Okay. And so we can measure that deformation. So example would be in, uh, along the San Andreas Fault in an area called Parkfield, California. Every few months we see the San Andreas Fault just slip, creep a little bit. And there's no earthquakes associated with it, and you cannot see it on GPS, but our instrument can measure that creep event. What did you say, Parkfield? Parkfield, California. Okay. It's really famous. They used to call themselves the earthquake capital of the world. And they have earthquakes that on average repeat every 33 years. There's like a six-point-something earthquake. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last one was in 2004, I believe, or 2005. Um, and so, yeah, with the strain meter, we can measure the resolution of the strain meter is one part in a billion. Ooh. Um, so that's called nano strain. And so that's the equivalent of if you had a, a, a slab of granite that was a thousand kilometers long and you squeezed it by a millimeter, we could see that signal. Mm. And actually, the, the way these instruments, theoretically, we can measure pico strain, but realistically, with noise and earth tides and all the stuff going on, you can't really get to that resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, like our, go, go ahead, please. I was going to say, like, the biggest signal we see on the strain meters are earth tides. So you can earth think of tides. like ocean. Okay. Yeah, so you have ocean tides created from interaction between the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. Mm-hmm. Well, you get the same kind of tides, but they're in the actual solid Earth really? in, in the crust. 
And so that's the biggest signal. So we have to do a lot of work to remove that tidal signal and barometric signal to see the strain signal. So things are always moving. One of the things that I learned from monitoring this earthquake Twitter account is there are earthquakes every day somewhere in the world. No, in a previous life, my job was to uh, monitor earthquake. When we worked at the Berkeley Seismic Lab, Uh was that I I monitored our park field network. And usually every day we get probably on order of 100 earthquakes. But these were earthquakes that were in the magnitude minus one to one range. Mm -hmm. So these are like basically individual rocks breaking. Oh, so that's how sensitive we can get with our seismometers is that we can actually measure, you know, a meter by a meter patch breaking or even smaller than that, which is really cool. Like it just blows my mind that Mm -hmm. we can measure that from, you know, a piece of equipment that is probably a couple kilometers away from where that event's happening. Mm. How do you know where to put these strain meters? Oh, that's a good question. Um, a lot of is, so like we, there, we put in a large network. So there's a kind of circle back. There, there uh-huh. was a project called plate boundary observatory. Um, and that was part of a larger project called Earthscope, And that had three legs. So Earthscope was made of something called SAFOD where they drilled into the San Andreas fault where earthquakes were occurring. So that the total length of that borehole is about, uh, 10,000 or yeah, about uh, 10,000 meters. Um, and so they actually pulled a piece of core and sampled where earthquakes were actually happening. Mm-hmm. The nerve part was called US Array, which was a mobile array of uh, portable seismometers. And they moved that array all across the United States so they could image what was going on underneath North America. And then the part I worked on was called Plate Boundary Observatory where we put in a thousand GPS monuments and about 80 of these strain meter sites. And the way we determined that, so for the Cascadia subduction zone, they, we use computational models to figure out where the rate of strain would be the highest and the lowest across due to the subducting zone. And then we tried to put the strain meters across those areas so we could get a good picture of how the strain was developing and, um, what the stress and strain field was in that area. So a lot of it's just, you know, like for San Andreas fault, we wanted to put a, you know, we know that there are earthquakes happening at let's say five kilometers. And so we would put a site five kilometers away from the fault just for the, the geometry of it. So you get the maximum signal. Um, so a lot of computational modeling mm-hmm. to know where to put these things in. So you've mentioned the San Andreas Fault a few times, and I want that we have listeners all over the world, and mm-hmm. some people might not be familiar with where exactly that is. Um, so the the San Andreas Fault goes from uh, basically southern um, California, basically Gulf of Mexico area, all the way up to Mendocino, California. Wait, which wait, is- wait, Gulf of Mexico area. Uh, not Gulf of Mexico, sorry, Gulf of California. Okay. Near the <laughs> border you. of California and Mexico? Yeah, so, it in, so into Mexico. Okay. So, um, it starts there. 
starts there. There's a what's called a triple juncture where there's a change in fault dynamics. Then it goes up, travels um, to the east of Los Angeles, goes all the way up to San Francisco along what we call the coast ranges. There's a mountain range in Western California that's being built because of the tectonics from the, you know, the plate boundary. Okay. Goes to, then it goes off into the ocean, goes west of San Francisco, goes back on land for a while, and then heads up into this area called Mendocino, which is about two to three hour drive north of San Francisco. And then that transitions into a fault that goes off into the ocean and the subduction zone. Okay. And we call that the Mendocino triple juncture. So it's where three fault zones come together mm. at one point, which is a really, and so we have um, in, a lot of instrumentation in that area because that's a really interesting place to study because you have a lot of things going on. And that's out in the ocean, right? Uh, well, that depends on who you ask. Oh, really? We don't really know. So there, there's theories that the triple junction is actually on land. And it might be the only triple juncture that we know, one of the few triple junctures that we know of that's Wait, on land. Wait, why is it a theory? Because and how do you know, um, how do you guys not know exactly where that triple junction is? Uh, it, it just we don't have enough data. Really, and there's different ways of imaging. You know, it's like okay, we think the it's here, we think it's here. I mean, because there's no surface expression of it. So you use see. remote sensing, is that right? So we're using remote sensing. So we're trying to figure out where these earthquakes are. We're trying to locate the earthquakes. But that area is so active that there could there could be different points where the, that triple juncture is because there's like, you know, different clusters of earthquakes. And you just have to collect data over time before you start getting a really good picture. Let's tell people what, what remote sensing is. Do you know Farouk Elbaz? I know the name. Okay. So he's a geologist yeah. uh, at, at uh, Boston University, and he's the head of their remote sensing department. And that is where you use ground penetrating radar, right, to mm -hmm. see what is beneath the surface. Um, yeah, you can, you know. I'm sure and there's so more to it than that. There's more to it. And our, our stuff is, you know, we have sensors that we're remote sensing, but we're not, we're kind of in between remote sensing and direct sensing. So our instruments are, we're trying to get close to where these events are happening. Like true remote, remote sensing would be, you know, something called uh, LIDAR, where you can fly a plane or a sil satellite over an area, you hit it with radar and you take those reflections back and then an earthquake happens and you fly back over this area, you do the same radar survey and then you d do the difference between the two plots and then you can see, oh, wow, there's this huge change that nobody could possibly see if they were actually walking around this area. Mm -hmm. um, and so with our, our stuff, you know, we're remote in that we have these instrumentation around the world. Everything gets sent back through either cellular or satellite communication or, you know, DSL. And all that data gets sent back um, to a data center and gets processed and gets looked at. And then you also have satellites that are flying over mm -hmm. that have radar on them and are constantly scanning the ground. Um, we have a mission called, or we, um, you know, the community had a mission called Grace that was two satellites, one 
would fly first and the one was following closely behind it. And you could actually see differences in the gravitation um, by the way these satellites could get pulled towards each other and away from each other caused by gravitational anomalies in the Earth, so, which is super cool. <laughs> yeah, and listening to all of this, it sounds like a lot of technology and resources have gone go into monitoring what's happening geologically with the earth and i'm wondering is it all for the collection of information because of the curiosity of the scientists or is something being done with the results of the data um so that's a good question you know yeah there there is the part that's just the basic science and wanting to learn about the planet we live on. Mm -hmm. And then, and and a lot of that, we can extrapolate that to what's going on on Mars, what's going on on Venus, what's going on in other areas. Like our control is earth and is very important in like, you know, studying these other planets, which is a very basic research, but we also have a very applied side, which is hazards monitoring. Yeah. We can, you know, like the grace mission, was actually more than just hazards monitoring. It was also aquifer monitoring, knowing where there's fresh water and where there's not water, knowing what the ice load is in, you know, the Antarctic and the Arctic. Knowing this, we can tell, you know, how much mass loss is in the ocean and it can tell us something about what's going on with, you know, climate change and melting waters. And that we can give to policymakers to know like, yeah, you know, there's this, how much mass of water there is in the ice caps. And if those melt, we know what the sea level rises at a higher um, degree. Mm -hmm. uh, for what I do, you know, our instrumentation um, is used in what's called earthquake early warning. And it's not predicting earthquakes. It's that let's say you have an earthquake in uh, the Palm Desert, like where we met, mm -hmm. you know. And it's a magnitude 7.3 earthquake. And it's going to be, you know, 30, 40 seconds between, before that energy hits San Diego or Los Angeles. We can rapidly determine how big that earthquake is going to be from our instruments. And this really, this is a tough problem um, to figure this out. But we can rapidly figure out what the magnitude is going to be. And if it, if it surpasses a certain threshold, of shaking for or predicted shaking for Los Angeles, we can send a warning to people's cell phones saying you're about to get hit by an earthquake, take shelter. Okay. And that gives people time that if they're driving, potentially they can pull aside of the road before they go to an overpass. If they're in a building, you know, they can say, Hey, let's get underneath the desk before the shaking starts. Cause if the earthquake's big enough, you're not going to be able to get underneath that desk because you're going to be thrown around. Mm -hmm. And so we can get people, you know, if you're a surgeon about to cut into someone yeah. and all of a sudden your earthquake alert goes on, you know, to cover that person if they're opened up so no dust falls into them or you're not doing some delicate surgery where your hand might slip because of the shaking. Mm -hmm. So that that's the really exciting thing we're doing. And um, so I, I've talked a few times about the Tohoku earthquake, the May 2011 
magnitude 9.1 earthquake in Japan. A lot of people died in that earthquake because it took them, I believe it was close to 30 minutes before they had a good magnitude estimate. The problem with really big earthquakes is that a lot of instrumentation, uh, we, we call it saturating. So the earthquake is so big that the instrument can't measure anymore. And so in the past, we weren't able to get a good magnitude estimate until that seismic energy got far enough away from the epicenter of the earthquake that instrumentation started being able to record it on scale. And so we didn't have, so initially in Japan, they thought the earthquake magnitude was only about magnitude eight, and they didn't think it was enough to cause a great tsunami. The data reached Hawaii and the US, and we started seeing like, oh wow, this is like a magnitude nine, issue a warning back to the Japanese, who then started issuing tsunami warnings. And by the time the tsunami warnings were issued, the tsunami in certain parts of Japan had already hit. Okay. And people didn't have time to evacuate. So there's been a huge push since then to be like, okay, we need to come up with a, a magnitude a lot quicker to help people. And so now with, you know, with strain meters and GPS and integrating seismology and GPS and strain meters together, we can do a magnitude you know, sometimes within seconds of this beginning of an earthquake. Uh, the, the strain meters are really exciting because we're now finding we can predict the maximum at magnitude within 20 seconds of earthquake starting. Of, of, and, of, wait a minute. Within 20 seconds of it starting, you can predict what it's going to peak at. Right. Um, I've seen, and, I've seen that the, the, uh, what do I want to say? the rating change afterward? Why does that happen? As we get more data, uh, the, so that, that, that's exactly the, what happens. So as that earthquake energy spreads out and we start picking out, um, you know, earthquakes have different kinds of energy packets in them. They have surface waves and, you know, the P wave and the S wave, which are like the initial energy fill. And then you get the surface waves, which is the excitation of the crust um, and as you like, as you collect all that data, then you're able to dial in a more, okay. a better uh, magnitude estimate. Well, for instance, the earthquake that hit Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley. I don't know, was it last week or the week before? Oh, uh, the yeah, yeah. Uh, the four point something. Yes, earthquake. yes. I have some friends that experienced it and said that it felt a lot stronger than that rating. What do you call the number? I'm sorry. I'm uh, the, the, mag the magnitude. The, the magnitude. magnitude. Thank you. The magnitude. And, and the, ma the magnitude, like they used to call it the Richter scale. Yeah. We, we don't use Richter scale anymore. Mm -hmm. At least, you know, the, the media report is Richter scale. The Richter scale only worked really for Cal Southern California earthquakes because that's where Charles Richter developed that scale. We now use what's called a moment magnitude scale, which is a, a way of quantifying the energy in the earthquake. Okay. And it's on that same magnitude, you know, zero through nine um, kind of scale. It's logarithmic. Um, so 
you know, a, a 7.0 is 10 times bigger than a 6.0, 8.0 is 100 times bigger than a 6.0, and so on. Um, but what, so it's not just the magnitude of the earthquake that causes the shaking, mm-hmm. it's also the geology you're in. And is it so, about the depth? Because they said that it was a shallow earthquake and that's why it felt stronger? Right. So a shallow earthquake can feel much stronger than a deeper earthquake. But also, if let's say you live in the Los Angeles Basin, the Los Angeles Basin is 20,000 feet of fill. And so it's not, it's loosely consolidated material. And so when you get a big earthquake, that whole area jiggles like a big jello mold. Mm. And so the shaking can be much worse. You know, you can be like right next to the earthquake on bedrock and it'll just be this, this really hard jolt, but you can be a hundred mile, you know, or a hundred kilometers away on, on loose sediment. And it feels like a really bad earthquake. I don't know if you remember, remember the Loma Prieta earthquake. So that was the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. Yes. I had the TV on when Jose Canseco, that Uh, one. uh, Yeah. During the Giants Um, game. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So parts of San Francisco, so you have the Mission District in San Francisco that took a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the districts that were right along the coast of San Francisco took a lot of damage. You also had in Oakland the Cypress Freeway that collapsed. But right, so you'd have like one building that was perfectly fine, no damage at all. And another building like a block away that was completely destroyed. Well, that building that collapsed was on fill. So in 1906, after the 1906 earthquake, they basically, all the debris and damaged buildings, they bulldozed that out into the bay. And then they brought in dirt and covered it with dirt, and then they built on top of it. So it was basically new land that was highly saturated with water, not very consolidated. And that's the area that basically took the worst damage in the Loma Prieta earthquake. Mm. And that earthquake took, it was actually 90 miles to the southeast of San Francisco. Oh. was where the hypocenter was. And so the damage was really interesting because the areas that took the most damage were areas that were away from bedrock and had the most unconsolidated, loose material that it was built on. Well, so that's really my concern with the San Andreas, San Andreas Fault all of the people that live right on it. They're, yeah. And, and, and it's expensive property and expensive homes and very densely populated areas. So what do we do? I mean, are these people all sitting ducks? Not necessarily. I mean, I think California, I'd rather be in an earthquake in California than a potentially, you know, I'd rather be in a magnitude... 5.1 in California than a 5.1 in North Carolina. Okay, tell me why. Earthquake codes. California has very good, very stringent earthquake codes. Yeah, will there be damage? Yes. Is it going to be as bad as somewhere like, you know, even like look at Iran. Iran has these magnitude 5 earthquakes where 10,000 people will die. Mm-hmm. Because it's unreinforced masonry and the homes collapse and um they, they're just because, you know, they don't have the same standards of okay. earthquake building. And I'm not saying all of Iran. Iran is just kind of an example, you know, or Pakistan or areas where 
you know, the infrastructure is poor and people live in, you know, are unfortunately can't afford to build right. in a way that survives people. And actually, you know, Haiti would be a really good example of this. Of you have two competing disasters that commonly happen in Haiti. Yeah. You have earthquakes and you have hurricanes. Hurricanes are a lot more common. So people tend to build in ways to protect them from hurricanes, which was, you know, these concrete slabbed homes. And that concrete slab does really well, unreinforced concrete slabs. So there's not a lot of rebar in it. That does really well against a hurricane and is a cheap and easy way to build a hurricane-proof home. You get a magnitude 7 earthquake that kills over 100,000 people. Yeah. Because all those homes are also death traps when it yeah. comes to an earthquake. Yeah. And, um, what the, you know, and Haiti was alerted that, yeah, you guys are going to get hit by a big earthquake. You need to do something. And the president of Haiti at the time actually really took it seriously. Unfortunately, the earthquake hit before they could make a lot of changes to the building code and, and reinforce these death traps. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a faculty member at, um, at CU Boulder named Roger Billum. And I've heard him quote or heard him say that, you know, earthquakes don't kill people, buildings kill people. Mm. And so I don't worry too much about a big earthquake. I worry about a big earthquake happening in an area that's not prepared for. But what if, this is what I always think when I'm in California, what if I'm on the freeway? You know, they, they've made a lot. So the, the Northridge earthquake, um, you know, every time one of these earthquakes happen and there's massive damage, yeah, we learn a lot. We learn, right. And so the Northridge earthquake showed there was a huge amount of vertical motion to that earthquake. And so these reinforced overpasses collapsed because they weren't designed for the shaking that they mm -hmm. received. So now they tie the, those overpasses together better. Um, you know, the chances of dying in the actual earthquake in the United States, especially in California is probably, you know, compared to somewhere like India or Turkey or some of these other countries that mm -hmm. are, you know, catching up is much less. So I, I don't actually worry that much when I'm in California. We want to know when these are happening. We want to give people the maximum amount of warning or, and give the engineers building these buildings the maximum amount of data they can have to properly design these buildings. So speaking of warnings, I saw in the news that uh, two things. Well, one is there is an app uh, that was created last year called MyShake. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend that? So yeah, a lot of these, there's, you know, like it, California has the Shake Alert, Alert app, which is a collaboration between USGS. Um, Shake Alert. Shake Alert. Okay. Yeah, and so it's, it's an app that's, you know, the state of California, USGS, other groups. And that's where you get that alert. Like, hey, you're about to get hit by a magnitude seven earthquake, take shelter. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and I, it's not quite that complicated. It's basically like prepare for shaking, brace yourself. Okay. How you know, long is in, that? Yeah. How long have those apps been around? Uh, they're kind of about a year. Uh, about a, a year. Okay. Yeah. You so, know, the, the, they had the earthquake in Ridgecrest last July. 
And the app was definitely active by then because a lot of people complained that they didn't get alerts for the shaking. Mm. But the reason they didn't get alerts for the shaking is because we knew that the shaking in Los Angeles would not be that bad and wouldn't cause any damage. And we don't want people getting alerts every time there's an earthquake. Right. Because let's say you get an alert and nothing happens, mm-hmm. you're just going to start alert, ignoring those alerts. Yeah. So it, it, it's from just a social sociology side of things, you know, earthquake early warning is also a, it's a difficult thing because you want to give people warning, but you want don't want to give people overwarn them because yeah. it's, you know, they'll start ignoring it. There's another thing thing I saw in the news, this is more recent, actually yesterday, uh, that Google is crowdsourcing earthquake data by turning mm-hmm. Android phones into earthquake detectors. And it's another UC Berkeley idea um, yeah. that said to crowdsource every cell phone on the planet to create a global seismic network. Yeah, no, that's, you know, that, that's some, there's some really cool stuff being done um, with crowdsourcing all these phones, even though, you know, they're moving around, but the idea is you have a certain number of phones that are sitting on someone's table or being right. charged. And those probably would make, you know, good, strong motion. Cause if those start bumping around and they all start bumping around all the time, you know, there's an earthquake. Okay. And then you can use that data, um, process it. And you can potentially tell first responders, where the worst shaking is. So that's the other thing we're working on okay. is because because you don't also, have meters, you don't have meters everywhere, but there are people no, everywhere with cell phones. But there's people, and that's the other thing. There's, um, you know, if, if you feel an earthquake, I strongly encourage people when they feel an earthquake, go to the USGS webpage, find the earthquake on the page, which is usually pretty easy. I think it's earthquake.usgs.gov, and you can actually fill in your zip code and how the shaking felt to you. And from that, we can actually come up with shake maps. So we can use instrumentation for shake maps, which is critical. Like I was saying, that depending on the geology, the shaking might be worse in one area than another area. Mm-hmm. And so with those shake maps, we can tell first responders, don't go to the epicenter. That's not where the worst shaking was. Okay. Go to this neighborhood. There we had significant you know, peak ground motion. And so we can, you know, there's a lot of really cool and useful things we can get with these instruments that can actually save lives. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that we touch on a few more things sure. on the list before we wrap up. One is moonquakes. That, right. So th- those are earthquakes, if you will, that occur on the moon. And they were first discovered by the Apollo astronauts. Right. But they're weak, right? Yeah, they're very weak. I was just reading, I think, you know, magnitude five might be the biggest moonquake that they've recorded. Oh, but that's still kind of big, isn't it? But it's, it's, it's relatively big, especially, you know, the moon's not that big. Not that big, yeah. But a lot of, I think, you know, so a lot of the moonquakes could be caused by meteor impacts. Um, but there's also thought that, you know, these quakes are all, you know, the moon, the core of the moon is mostly solid with a very thin layer of liquid core. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> you know, and that's from the, that's from the seismic data uh-huh. that we've gotten that is, okay. you know, you can, you know, like as seismic weight, that's how we know that we have a solid core 
that's spinning slightly faster than the total Earth is spinning, with surrounded by a big liquid core. Wait, so you're Earth- saying that the Earth does have a solid core? It is not hollow. I, I unless there's some really weird seismology going on. Okay, you've heard it here, uh, folks, from yeah. a geologist trained at UC Berkeley. The Earth is not hollow, and neither is the Moon. Right. Um, unless there's something weird going on. Okay. I can attest to that. So we can tell like, you know, so as the seismic energy passes through the earth, you know, it goes through the solid mount mantle, then it hits the liquid core and the energy changes in that, in that seismic energy. It's some of it slows down, some of it speeds up and then it goes through the solid core and goes through a phase chain again, change again, then it goes to the liquid core and then it comes out. And so we measure that energy. But then we see a seismic trace that doesn't go through the core, and we can measure what's going on with that energy. And from that, you know, you stack up all these seismographs, you can tell that the Earth has a, you know, a nickel-iron core that's solid with a liquid core on the outside and then another solid mantle. And the way you can do that is there's two kinds of basic seismic, er- seismic waves. You have a pressure wave which is like a sound wave. And that can go through water. It can go through, you know, it can go through liquids and it can go through solids. But then you have a shear wave. And a shear wave can only be transmitted via solid ground. It can't be transmitted through liquid. So a shear wave, once it hits a liquid interface, gets transformed into a kind of pressure wave. Then it hits the solid core, gets turned back into a shear wave. And, get, and, and from that, it's kind of, it's like an MRI okay, in a way, where as it goes through different density material, an MRI, you know, with a bunch of um, different waves from the magnetic resonance, mm-hmm. you can build up a picture of what's going on inside your body. Mm-hmm. We can do that with the Earth at a much higher degree, and we can do it with Mars eventually, and we can do it with the moon. You know, and it's not quite as good data because we don't have as many instruments. Right. But you can do a lot with just a few instruments, especially in a quiet area like the moon mm-hmm. or Mars. Mm-hmm. So what is happening on Mars? Uh, from what I read, the first Mars quake was detected just last year in April. Yeah, l- last April. Um, and they've detected, there's a number, I think they're up to like 40 candidates. Now that they kind of know what to look for, mm. uh, they're seeing a lot more of them. Some of them might be from meteor impacts. Um, some might be from, you know, the cooling of the Martian core and things, you know, shrink a little bit or change change volume and that can cause earthquakes. There's a lot of different theories. There's theories that, you know, uh, you know Mars used to be a pretty active it looks like Mars was pretty active mm-hmm. in the past. And so there's a lot, it's similar to what's going on on the East coast where you have this residual strain that's being released, causing Mars quakes. And the same for the moon. The moon has residual strain in it. That's being released. That causes moon quakes. I just want to clarify that I'm not suggesting that the first Mars quake to ever happen occurred last year. Right. I'm saying that, we uh, sent a seismometer to Mars in late 2018, and the first one that we detected was 
last year, 2019, uh, by the Correct. Insight Mission. The Insight uh, the Mission. The Insight yeah. Lander. Okay. So that about covered. Is there anything else you wanted to add about Mars quakes? Uh, just, I mean, Mars has been really interesting. Yeah. There, it's probably it's quieter than they thought it would be. Um, th- that that seismometer that's on Mars is the quietest seismometer mm. that we know of in the universe. <laughs> Assuming wow. that you know um, other civilizations. I mean, of course, that's pretty a lot of hubris be saying it's quietest in the universe, but it's the quietest that we know of. That we know of. Okay. Uh, because you know, on Earth, there's a lot of noise just from ocean tides. There's a lot, you know, a seismic noise. And on Mars, there's a lot of noise. No, it's actually Mars, or I mean the moon, sorry. On the moon, there's noise that's from just tidal flexing from going around the Earth. Okay. Kind of like the Earth tides that was happening. The moon also has tides on it caused by the Earth and the sun. And how do they show up? Just as noise, as micro, we call it micro seism. There's like, there's just this like a hum that we always see on the earth. We always, you know, we can see it, you know, the moon has its own microseisms. Mars though is just very quiet. The main noise source on Mars is just the wind noise. Could that just be because of the period of the cycle that it's in Mars, that it's quiet? It's just quiet now. Well, it's quiet now. I mean, part of the thing is, you know, one of the theories is like the reason earth is so tectonically active is that we have lots of water and the water can change how the rock melts. You get water and rock subducting that can cause melting mm-hmm. and that can ca- basically help drive and allow for plate tectonics. Mars has lost the most of the majority of its liquid water. It lost billions of years ago. We, we think it lost. We it think, billions of years okay. Ago. Okay. And without that water, there's not a lot of tectonics going on. The volcanism probably shut down because of that. You know, and there's nothing that says, you know, they can't reignite volcanism. We, mm-hmm. I don't think we have enough data to know that. It's unlikely that it would happen, but it's possible. Um, the same for Venus. Venus is a tech, you know, it's an active planet, but we think it only has one plate. Because all the water's oh. gone, and so it changes how uh, the basically the tectonics of the planet behaves. Because um, all the water's gone, it's just right. Isn't it deadly sulfuric acid? Is is that Venus? Well, Venus is just deadly no matter what because it has such high cloud cover that it's you know eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, okay. So it's just an uh, inhospitable yeah. planet, but it's a really interesting planet. I think we'll learn a lot more about earth from studying Venus than we necessarily would from studying Mars. Mm-hmm. But Mars is kind of lower hanging fruit than Venus. Cause it's such a hostile environment on Venus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we couldn't set foot on Venus. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, on the insight mission is they have a, a heat probe to study the heat flux from the core of Mars to the surface. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they've had pro- where they happen to land um, the soil isn't as strong as they thought it would be. Oh. And so they've had problems with that heat probe digging itself down mm-hmm. to the depth it's supposed to be at. So mm-hmm. now it's, so they have to like, so basically it, it rattles around because it, it's basically a hammer. It just drops a hammer over and over again inside the probe. Okay. And it's supposed to dig itself down. 
unfortunately the soil was loose enough that it just kind of spun itself around and dug a huge hole. Um, so they've been working on it for the last two years, trying to get it so t- deep enough and they're making progress. It's just been very, it's hard when, you know, you have a very long round trip, you know, anywhere yeah. between 10 to 20 minutes round trip. So you send a command and then you have to wait for that command to get back and your data rates are low. So you have to wait for that data c- to compile to see if you made any progress. Mm-hmm. It sounds very frustrating to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I keep you know, I have friends who are at JPL who I've told, like, send me, I'll go. I know it's a one-way trip, but hey, I'll get that temperature probe working. <laughs> so, yeah, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Martian, so it made me think of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we end this with Yellowstone? What sure. is going on with Yellowstone? Because you use, that photo that you use, I'm looking at it right now on Skype, that's a picture of Yellowstone, right? That is a picture of Yellowstone. That is a hydrothermal. Is it that is the eruption going <laughs> yes, on? Yes. Yes. That is a hydrothermal eruption. Okay. Which the fact that I got that fo- that's my one in a million photo. And because you've been using that for years and years, ever since I've known you. Yeah. So that was I think that was two thousand and it was either spring two thousand eight or spring two thousand nine, um, and. You took that photo. I took that photo. Okay. So, so it was. It's a really funny story behind it. So I was with uh, a gr- group with my boss and a group of seismologists and geologists, getting a tour of the park from the park geologist. And we stopped at that um, hydrothermal spring to discuss hydrothermal explosions. And he was showing a photo of the last time they had like people. So some people like a couple of years before had been at that same spring and had taken a photo of a hydrothermal explosion, but they didn't want that photo be, to be shared with the public. Um, so the geologist, you know, part Wait, geologist why? was, why? I just, I think they won money out of it. Oh, okay. Um, and so they were, he was talking about how, like how rare it is for people to get photos of hydrothermal explosions, how unusual it was that someone got this photo uh, this was not a hot uh, a hot pool for we, they would expect to see a hydrothermal explosion at, and was describing the process. And I wasn't really I was just watching the pool, and we were kind of away from the main group. We were just tagging along, and I see this bubble behind him. <laughs> and my boss and I look at each other, and I start I just whip whip out my camera and start taking pictures. And that was actually the third blast that I got that photo on. So there was about four heat blasts. About the time that the third one was where I got that great photo, mm-hmm. we get hit by the heat wave from it. I was going to say. And, you know, there's people who are just visiting the park who are like cowering down. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's throwing out rocks the size of big watermelons, hundreds of feet. And what are you guys doing? Are you just breathing it to I'm, get the photo? Yeah. I'm just, I mean, my brain thoughts, like take as many pictures as possible. And, <laughs> and, and, and then that heat wave hit. And finally I'm like, maybe we should run. Uh-huh. And then we all start backing away from the eruption and then it stops. It's just dead silence. Like I've, the fourth, fourth eruption was just a little bit, was smaller and then it just stopped. And that was super cool. So now and, what are these explosions? 
A lot. It, it's probably, you know, the, the, there's hydrothermal fluids that are being fed. You know, there's multiple systems in the Yellowstone. So you have, you know, you have the magma chamber and then you have water, fluids circulating above the magma chamber. And then those heat up fluids that are higher up. And a lot of those are the ones that create the geysers and create the interesting thermal features in Yellowstone. And this was, there was probably a pocket of gas that got entrapped in the fluid. And as it got to the surface, it's back to that same, you know, the, the pressure of the rock and atmosphere above it was low enough that that, that gas was able to flash into steam had no way of escaping through the normal conduits. And so it blasts the plas- uh, a path through the, the fluid conduits that the normal fluid was going through and caused all that rock and debris to get blasted up mm-hmm. into the sky. Mm-hmm. And so that happens just randomly. You just happen to get a, there's a lot of dissolved gas in the water and it hits the right pressure and flashes to steam. So and no, that's kind of like what happens with geysers. Geysers okay. are similar to that where – but it's just really very regular that you get enough gas build up that it finally has to get out and it blows all the water out. So what else goes on at Yellowstone? What kind of work do you do there or do you go there for leisure? Uh, work mostly. Um, so we, we have a network of strain meters in Yellowstone and GPS sites and seismometers. Um yeah, I often get people are like, oh, is Yellowstone going to blow up next week? It's like, no. No, okay. <laughs> Or very low chance. You know, because we, we would probably see changes to the Yellowstone environment uh, months, if not years, before any large eruption. And let's tell people who are not familiar, wh- where is Yellowstone? It's a national park. That's what we're referring to. Right. So Yellowstone is a – what you know, kind of popular vernacular is called a super volcano. So the park is in Montana, Northwest Wyoming and Idaho. It covers that whole area. The main, you know, the main volcanic part of the park is what we call the Yellowstone caldera, which is 60 by 40 kilometers. Just this big oval. And that is actually the crater from the last eruption that was about 600, 760,000 years ago when whoa, approximately 760,000 years ago. Yeah. That okay. was the big, I mean, there's been, eruptions I just, I just want to make then. sure I got that number right. Okay. Yeah. So there's been eruptions. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting 640,000 years ago. Oh, the well, other one, I'm thinking know. of another called there in California. I always get their timing confused. Okay. Well, close enough. Close enough. Um, within an order of magnitude. Yeah. Um, but that eruption was probably a little less than a thousand cubic kilometers of ash was erupted. And so all that magma chamber erupted and then the floor collapsed back into the magma chamber. And that's what formed this huge, beautiful caldera. And so inside that caldera, there's, that's where all, most of the thermal features are. There are some other thermal features that are outside to the north of the park outside the caldera. And um, this caldera, basically, it breathes. So it goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down on the period of, you know, years to decades. And we think, you know, the material comes into the magma chamber and it dissipates and it comes into the magma chamber and dissipates. 
And so we can monitor that with GPS, with these strain meters, with seismometers. And with these strain meters we have in, we can detect, you know, like I was saying, we can detect one part in a billion and change of strain. And so if a big influx of material came into the magma chamber and was heading towards the surface where it looked like it was going to erupt, that would be a huge signal on our strain meters. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I could see an eruption in our lifetime, but not a super volcano okay. end of the world eruption yeah. or like, you know, a small a lava flow or a small, you know, explosion. Um the hydrothermal explosions are probably much more likely to happen. Um, there have been some very large hydrothermal explosions like that photo I took, Mm -hmm. except for, you know, orders and orders of magnitude bigger. Wait, so people are allowed in that area though, right? So yeah, there's boardwalks through the area. So the boardwalks go over the thermal areas. So you don't want to walk on that crust because your foot could break through that crust and you okay. could be in scalding water okay. instantaneously. Um, and so they have very nice boardwalks. They're well-maintained that anybody can walk along these boardwalks and you can see these thermal features. They're not dangerous. Like that hydrotherm, it felt a little scary, but we were still far enough away that, um, you know, we were pretty safe. Well, you said it was hurtling rocks. so they It was hurtling rocks, but... They, the rocks were far enough away from us that, okay. you know, we weren't going to get hit by them. Okay. But in the, in the moment when you're watching this thing happen, it's definitely an adrenaline rush. Cause yeah. you just don't, you don't really, you know, you know, intellectually that you're fine, but there's that primal part of you. That's like, run idiot. Sure. <laughs> don't take a photo run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Yellowstone's, you know, Yellowstone, one of the kind of characteristics of Yellowstone is they get these earthquake swarms. Some of those swarms are tectonic because Yellowstone's also within a earthquake generating zone. Um, in the late 1950s, there was the Hagbin Lake earthquake, which I believe was 7.1, that killed a bunch of campers because um, of from rock slides. And um, a rock slide into a river that caused basically a tsunami that wiped out some camping grounds. And so we have residual aftershocks from that earthquake. And we'll see swarms of earthquakes in the northwest part of the park. We'll also see swarms of earthquakes within the park, which is probably maybe you know magma moving up towards the surface and then stopping. And are these earthquakes, are any of them doing any damage? You know, um, I think the biggest earthquake they've had is like a four or something. And generally it doesn't do damage. Okay. I mean, there's not a lot out there. There's, you know, the park infrastructure, but that's generally pretty well built. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll, and you'll get swarms. You'll like, you'll see like on, you know, science sites be like, there's been a thousand earthquakes in the last three weeks in Yellowstone. Yes. There's been a thousand earthquakes, but most of those are imperceptible to human beings. Okay. Yeah, they're magnitude ones and less. Have you ever camped there? Yeah, I've camped there. I've lived there for months while we were installing. I've had my run-in with um, grizzly bears and their cubs. Really awkward when a grizzly bear comes, and when a cub of a grizzly bear comes walking right up to you, and you're like, "Uh, where's mama? (laughs) Oh, no. What did you do? I took photos and got in my truck. (laughs) 
and just hung out in the truck where until they went away. Where did you stay when you were working there in some sort of st- in structures or tents? Um, we'd stay in like, uh, you know, RVs okay. or um, uh, park um, housing, or we'd stay in hotels outside the park. Mm-hmm. It just it depended on what time of year it was and what we could get. I mean, the, big, the biggest risk there is probably forest fires. That's mm-hmm. the only thing. Well, I'm there. That's the only thing I worry about is mm-hmm. someone starting a big fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been there when there's been big fires, and that's that's a little scary because that's can be way less predictable yeah. than you know monitoring earthquakes. I did want to ask you about fracking. Oh, okay, good. Because sometimes I think that here in Illinois there was some ground shaking, and it turned out to be fracking. Right. No, fracking is really interesting, especially, you know, from an earthquake standpoint. Like Oklahoma is now one of the most earthquake active states in the country. And it's all because of fracking. And it's not the actual fracking that causes the earthquakes necessarily. Because usually where, where you're fracking for gas and oil is too shallow to really cause an earth, a big earthquake. But they also, but the fluids that they use when they're fracking um, it's considered wastewater. You can't just dump it or anything and it's too expensive to process. And so they have even deeper wells where they'll dispose of all this wastewater. And so they're injecting tens of thousands of gallons of water down these waste wells. And those waste wells are then activating ancient faults. There's still enough strain on those faults to cause earthquakes and they can cause, you know, upwards of five. Some people, I think they've, you know, people predicted you could cause like a six size earthquake. And a lot of that's like, you know, you're pumping all this water at really high rate and you can cause earthquakes. Um, and we actually, you know, we've, I've, I've worked on project where we've installed sensors at oil fields where they're, you know, hydrologically stimulating the oil production. So we can study how these earthquakes happen in a very controlled, safe environment. Um, and my biggest issue with fracking is companies not using best practices. Um, so one of the things about fracking is you want to make sure the area you're fracking is isolated from any higher up aquifers where people might be drinking water from. Mm, mm-hmm. And the way you do that is um, steel casing surrounded by cement. And it's supposed to seal that off. And you have to do that. You have to weld that steel casing very carefully and you have to make sure your cement job is done very well. And that's, uh, that can't be done all the time then. Well, I don't want to say the company cause I don't want to get sued. Okay. But I know someone who worked on fracking operations for a major oil support company. Mm-hmm. And he was always complaining to me how he, they would, what you do before you frack a hole is you put, you seal off the top of the casing and the bottom of the casing and you pressurize it. And then you look and make sure it can hold a high amount of pressure. Then, you know, at least the cement job is good and you shouldn't have gas at least leaking out of the casing. You can't really test the cement that way, but you're hoping that they did, if they did a good job welding the casing, they probably did a good job with the cementing. Mm -hmm. Well, they would often see leaks and see pressure drops which would mean that they weren't allowed to frack the hole. Well, they would forge 
you know, basically fudge the numbers so it would pass so they could frack the hole so they could make their money for fracking the hole from the oil company or the natural gas company. And there was a lot of that kind of like, you know, if you know what's good for you, you're going to pass this borehole because someone else will, if, if we don't do it, someone else in our company will come along and do the job. And so that, that's my problem is that there's this serious lack of best practices and even best practices. I don't know if they're good enough Um, because a lot, we did some pressure testing of boreholes we did. And even though we were using best practices, we still had casing failures and leakage that we had to go back, you know, and we're not doing anything nearly as destructive potentially to like a whole aquifer than what they're doing in fracking. And, And we're only going down, you know, a couple hundred meters versus, you know, maybe a thousand meters mm. for um, some of these holes are fracking. Yeah, and so I, you know, Deepwater Horizon is a perfect example of what happens when you have a bad cement job. Um, and that was the 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 rig that blew up in the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. and you know, massive ecologic disaster because they didn't use the right kind of cement because mm-hmm. uh, the BP wanted to save some money, and so they basically used a cheaper version of cement. One of the companies they were working for ran simulations, told them there was a high chance of the cement job failing and having a blowout. And they didn't want to spend the extra million dollars to use a, you know, a higher grade or a cement or add the right chemicals to it. So it's set up properly. And now we have billions of dollars in damage to the Gulf and probably a lifetime of ecological damage. Yeah. And so that's my, my view is like, I think I, like I said, I don't fundamentally, I don't have a problem with fracking. I do have a problem with, you know, lack of regulation Mm -hmm. and lack of enforcement of regulation. So when, you know, you get administrations that come into the government who are like, we're eliminating all these regulations because they're too onerous for companies to follow. Kind of like, well, you know, maybe there's some regulations that are excessive, but there is a reason. It's not yeah. like these regulations are created out of thin air. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these companies, you know, get away with murder around these regulations and people suffer for it. I live in Colorado. There's parts of Colorado where farmers can't use their own drinking water because they can light that water on fire because oh. there's communication between the natural gas areas and the water aquifers. And those aquifers are getting saturated with natural gas. Mm. And even worse, a lot of the chemicals they use in the fracking, it, it, you know, it can be kind of nasty stuff. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't drink it. Right. So, so that's my issue in fracking is that you can't, you don't want to do the wastewater injections in areas where you can cause earthquakes. And you also want to use best practices when doing the actual fracking and drilling the actual holes. And if the hole doesn't pass your test, you shouldn't frack on it. But I don't control the world. (laughs) And there's a lot, there's a lot of money involved behind this. So there's a lot of incentive to skirt the rules. Yeah. Well, we'll just leave it at that and, uh, and not comment uh, any (laughs) further. So is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? 
No, I think, you know, I, I've been, this kind of goes back to like, you know, some of the stuff in COVID. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting. I have a lot of sympathy for the uh, epidemiologist and the researchers, you know, because like I was saying, you know, Mount St. Helens is a good example. Mm-hmm. We thought that St. Helens would behave in one way. It behaved in a way we never had seen before. And mm-hmm. so we had to change our entire thought process around volcanoes. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of seen it with the COVID thing where like, you know, before there was, they were saying, wash your hands, that'll protect you. Cause they thought it was transmitted through fomites, which is, you know, material on surfaces mm-hmm. and then realize, Oh wow. Actually a mask really does help. And so the, the scientist saw they made a mistake, corrected it, gave out new information. And I see a lot of people turn around being like, whoa, that's, you know, the scientists don't know what they're talking about. They keep changing their mind. And it's like, it's not that the scientists keep changing their mind. It's like, as we get more data, we are the best thing about, to me, the best thing about science is that we know to admit when we're wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a sign of a true scientist. You know, and you do get egos involved where people are like, "Uh, I need to stick to my paradigm. I can't change. Right. But that's a good sign of you that there's good science going on when you see them making these changes and being willing to admit, I just hope people kind of understand that process that, that, that science is a self-correcting process. Yes. And that ideally, you know, if you see a scientist say one thing one month and they change their mind the next month, it doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. It means that they're getting more data yep. and they're refining that data and they're passing that on to you. And so see that as being actually a good thing. Great point. Thank you so much for your time today, Wade. Really appreciate you joining us. Um, and I just want to say, you know, I'm, we covered a lot of different topics that I'm not an expert in. So, you know, any mistakes are mine. And just want to have that out there. That, noted. You know. Noted. Thank you, Wade. I'm just going to read the outro now. Stay with me. Okay. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, Com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, Play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to my very special guest, Wade Johnson, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Or, 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 or